Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Barron. Dr. Barron is the president of the American Board of Internal Medicine. That is the governing board for all of those who do what I do, which is the practice of internal medicine. Uh, also covers what I do more specifically, which is hospital medicine. Um, it's been an interesting few years for the American Board of Internal Medicine. We'll refer to it as the ABIM. That's how most people refer to it. And I'm very grateful to Dr. Barron for joining us. So thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. So obviously, for those who are in medicine, I think probably those who are outside of medicine know that there has been, uh, I think it's fair to say, significant amounts of turbulence in the way the ABIM and its membership have been communicating, interacting, and and trying to figure out what the future is going to look like. Can you give us a sense, first of all, of where you feel like some of that turbulence may have come from? Sure. Uh, First of all, I think for everybody who's in practice today, there's a lot of turbulence going around, uh, whether you're in your field of hospital medicine, uh, certainly ambulatory practice, specialty practice, payment is changing, technology is changing, uh, the organization of care is changing, and the role of physicians is changing. And the way that people in our society relate to organizations uh, is changing. And that's a lot driven by technology and the intimacy that we're able to have with other individuals through social media. Uh, And it's also changes in authority structures that uh, I don't care whether you're a priest or a journalist or a politician or a doctor. uh, It's not a great time to be in the authority business. And I think the American Board of Internal Medicine and the changes in the relationship that we're having uh, with diplomates, it's, it's on that social uh, evolutionary and adaptive spectrum of what's going on across healthcare right now. So obviously, I agree with you. Um, the, I finished my residency in 2006, and medicine has obviously been completely overhauled since that time, and the, the change is ongoing. Um, it seemed to me... From my end, you know, I go to conferences. Obviously, I have a busy practice. I have colleagues that are from, you know, medical school residency that I work with now that are spread all over the country. The, the messages that people convey seem to be fairly consistent. One of them is that they are very conscious of how their time is utilized. They are very conscious of how they continue to learn and their commitment to their craft to stay on top of the actual practice of medicine and how quickly the science and technology changes. Um, they're also very sensitive to being told what to do if they don't agree with it. Do you feel like that kind of those three roads are what has led to that collision from your perspective, as you say, being on the side of the sort of medical authority figure? Yeah, I, I certainly think the, the first two resonate, uh, very deeply, uh, of the, uh, uh, the extent to which people are uh, passionate about staying on top of their field uh, and given all the pressures and issues going on that that every frontline clinician is dealing with, uh, major concerns about their time. And I think uh, the issue of being told what to do, um, sure, I mean, none of us ever want to be told what to do, but all of us participate willingly 
in structures that we believe in, uh, that we think help us advance our own goals and help us do what we're trying to do professionally better. And I, I think the challenge for the board has been the way that we have not connected as successfully with that aspect of personal pride and people have seen us more as uh, an institution telling them what to do as opposed to an institution that channels and embodies some of their own best intentions and best aspirations. I'll be honest, it's, it is sort of gratifying to hear acknowledgement that there has been a disconnect. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the ABIM sends out a lot of messages that I think are made public as well, uh, to that fact. Um, and I think that it is really important. I think that you're, you're right though, that there is a disconnect between the vision of what probably the majority of the, the membership would like to see come from the ABIM and what the ABIM was doing. One of the key pieces of this, I think you and I can talk about a little bit is the, the issues around what, what's called maintenance of certification, MOC. This was something that was uh, kind of, again, overhauled a few years ago. Can you kind of give us a snapshot of where the MOC program started from and how that road has gone? Absolutely. Uh, the, the ABIM began in 1936 as a joint creation of the American Medical Association and the American College of Physicians. And the idea was two membership societies recognized that they had an interest in having standards in the profession. And in a way, internists didn't exist at that time as a recognized organized discipline. The, the world was general practice uh, and licensed physicians. And there was not at that time uh, recognition of separate specialties Separate specialties really begin with the board movement uh, in the first part of the 20th century. Ophthalmology was the first of the boards. And this is a pretty common administrative path to walk. Uh, what happens is membership constituency organizations, and this happens in lots of industries, recognize that a threat to them is people who look like them but aren't aren't exercising the same level of care or training or expertise that they have. Mm -hmm. And really, nothing stops anybody in this country from putting up a sign saying, I cure cancer here. <laughs> right. Nothing right. stops anybody from putting up a sign that says, I'm a cardiologist. Right. Uh, and so the, the societies, the professional societies recognize that physicians had a shared interest in protecting themselves and the public by being able to create a credential that would reliably distinguish someone who was appropriately qualified from someone who was not. In 1936, when that happened, the credential that was issued uh, was modeled after the idea of a diploma. In fact, to this day, the board refers to holders of the board credential as diplomates. Yep. And if you think about it, that's a model that most of us are familiar with. Medical school gives you an MD diploma. Uh, your college gives you a, a, a diploma. And they don't come back 20 years later and ask what you're doing. But as a result, the salience and relevance of that credential over the course of your career kind of wane uh, because they say less and less that's important. The board movement in the 70s 
began to realize that lifetime certification was probably not a good idea, that it would put the boards in a position where what we were saying about physicians was less and less relevant over the course of a career. And people recognized that one way that professional self-regulation could be active in a more dynamic environment was for the boards to move toward time-limited certification. So some of the newer boards that were created from the 70s on, and I'll include in this family medicine uh, or emergency medicine, those boards never had lifetime certification. They always issued certificates with the understanding that they were good for a period of time and would need to be renewed after that period of time. In the case of family medicine, I believe it was seven years at the beginning. ABIM, which already existed and had 40 years of history by the time those conversations were happening, had very tortured conversations over more than a decade about how to move from a lifetime credential to a more continuous credential that would speak to whether people were staying current, would say something more current and meaningful about a doctor today, as opposed to about the training they completed 20 or 30 years ago. And when you say that, you're referring to someone in the public being able to look and say, this person is being deemed certified by this entity, and that it's current as opposed to they did it in 1936, and they're still good to go. That's correct. But it isn't just the public. Uh, It's our colleagues. uh, It's our healthcare institutions. Uh, all of whom have an interest in knowing whether we are practicing today's medicine. Right. They, they want to be confident that we are. And the boards realized that there is professional expertise involved in that. Who do we want defining what today's medicine is, what the skills, knowledge, and practices that doctors have today who do we want defining what those things are? And the board's effort to move toward, to move away from lifetime certification was an effort to have, continue a channel for physicians to be able to participate in that conversation. What do we expect of physicians? It's different 30 years after they finish training. Absolutely. And I, the I board- think that. One of the things that that happens, though, I mean, I just completed my recertification process from the you know finishing residency in 06. I just took my exam and thankfully passed it. I heard. The, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. The, the, the recent changes when the, the maintenance of certification rolled out, it seems like that really was the, the newest iteration of this, uh, was really the crux of where some of the controversy surrounding the ABIM came from. Um, would you say is, would you agree that 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 changes to the MOC that came out a couple of years ago uh, have generated a, a, a probably a, maybe an unanticipated response? I think that's true, but I think that there that response was happening in a variety of channels before the new program was launched. Uh-huh. Uh, the The steps between 1936 and the new program. In 1990, the board started issuing time-limited certificates that were good for 10 years. And the board assumed that people would continuously maintain those certificates. But in fact, what was happening was people waited until year eight and a half or nine 
uh, to fulfill the expectations of the program and did them all in a year and a half uh, and then said, gosh, this is really taking a ton of time when it was meant to be spread out over 10 years. So the core change that the board was trying to launch in 2014, which was close to a decade in the planning, was to move toward a more continuous model of certification where it wasn't just you had it for 10 years and then redid it, but you had milestones along the way that you were expected to meet uh, and that those milestones would speak in a more continuous way to whether you were staying current. So we moved from a lifetime credential where once you had it, you had it forever to a 10-year credential where you had it no matter what for 10 years to a credential that basically had a two-year cycle in the middle of it. You know, I don't think many people disagree that that sort of um, spectrum of of validity is important. But when this came out a couple of years ago, I mean, it really went off like a stick of dynamite. And I mean, I remember getting the email from you saying, we are going to retool this. We got this wrong. Um, How did that process come about where, I mean, did you expect this thing Like you said, it takes, it takes a long time. It takes a number of convoluted, difficult meetings. It goes out to the membership and it just gets tossed back to you on fire. Well, uh, that is an accurate description of what happened for sure. Uh, and, and I think that it goes back to something that you said at the beginning, uh, your, your third point of what doctors are concerned about, about being told what to do, that the board had understood its responsibility to diplomates to communicate clearly what the rules were going to be in the new program. And if there's anything that structured the broad communications that we had in explaining the program to people, it was to try to be as clear and accurate as we could be about what the rules of the program were going to be going forward. And in that sense, what we did was we explained what people had to do, but we lost touch and didn't have the conversation with why people might need to do it and why people might want to do it and why people might care about doing it. And we didn't present ourselves as helping doctors do that thing that you just described we all care about of really staying at the top of our game. Instead of connecting with that impulse of doctors, we positioned ourselves as one organization, one more organization that had a bunch of rules that was telling doctors what to do at a time that there already was a lot of frustration and anger in the physician community about lots of institutions telling them what to do from their electronic health record compliance officer to the federal government to the uh, the new expectations that their health systems might be putting on them. And doctors saw us as on that list of, or of institutions bossing them around uh, and they were really mad about it. And as one person said to me at the time, um, they understand that they can't change Congress and they understand that they can't change the federal government, but they really believe they ought to be able to change you because you are of the profession. I, I, I think that that's a, a very complete and correct summary. I think that's how a lot of my colleagues felt. We obviously, as I'm sure you are aware, everyone talked about this sort of thing when it started and continue to talk about it today. I would add one other piece to this, though. I think that we all want the way that we're going to be evaluated, the way that that 
um, process to ensure that those who are diplomats of the ABIM are maintaining their certification correctly is also an accurate representation of the way that we do our work on a day-to-day basis. You know, I, t- I took the focus practice in hospital medicine exam over the last couple of years. All of my friends who finished residency a little bit before me, they've all taken the exam. The sample size is a pretty robust one. I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the way the 10-year examination itself works. I'll be honest. I walked out of that exam feeling like this did not evaluate the way I practice medicine today. I was forced to guess, which I never, ever do. We're not trained to guess. We're trained to look things up. We're trained to talk with colleagues. We're trained to involve our patients in shared decision-making. We're not trained to guess. When we're faced with a difficult, a difficult problem where, where our obligation, our goal is to look to our resources, to take our time if we have time available, um, and really dive in and, and try to tease something out, use, you know, leveraging the expertise of colleagues, leveraging, you know, resources, journal articles, all these sorts of things. And I, I people come out of that exam feeling like this is not testing me uh, or any of the skills that are relevant to the way I practice medicine. And, that harbors some resentment because we invest tons of time going to conferences, spending money to get pre- preparatory materials and to get ready for the examinations. And to come out of it feeling like, boy, this was nowhere near correct, it's frustrating. Sure. Uh, I, I think it's important to contextualize a few things. Uh, first, absolutely, we live in a world where we have access to knowledge resources and we can and do use them. But first of all, the patients have access to those same knowledge resources, and they can and do use them. And there is a bunch of knowledge that we have that patients don't have that are core to what we do every day. And although you can look things up, you don't have time to look up everything. There's a bunch of stuff that you need to come to work with it being on your hard drive. And it's got to be there. It's got to be accessible to you. There's a bunch of stuff you have to just know how to do. And by the way, a bunch of stuff that people think they know how to do, it turns out that they're not correct that that's how it's supposed to be done, but they may keep doing it anyway. So there's plenty of data that people are not reliably great at self-assessment and that having formal structured tools that push people to learn things that they otherwise wouldn't have learned or that they thought they knew but didn't know correctly add value. Now, they don't add value every day all the time. It's not every minute of it that's adding value. But the process that you went through and that I went through, I took the exam a year and a half ago, uh, that process pushes people uh, to to do more studying, to review things that they otherwise might not have reviewed. And they do that in a context where everybody's busy. They, mm. They've got kids and they've got church and they've got social organizations and they've got family and they are balancing the amount of time that they are able to put into staying current in their field with lots of other things that are demanded of them. And uh, frankly, Mark, uh, some people put a lot of time into that. Some people, not so much. And the reality that not everyone in our discipline is staying current is something that we do need to confront because it does happen and all of us know it happens. 
And that's an important thing not to lose sight of uh, as well. And the one other comment I'll make about uh, the exam, two comments. One, um, as you and your listeners probably know, uh, we released the Assessment 2020 report this summer, which was put together by a group of outside experts looking at what options there might be for how to move toward more modern forms of assessment. And uh, we're fully engaged in talking to the community of societies and individual internists about um, what they think alternatives for assessment might be. And we're looking at Open Book uh, as one of the resources that we would make available. We're also looking at remote proctoring so people don't have to go to a, a secure center. Uh, we're looking at ways to, to bring that into the program. But I do want to point out that an exam is a proxy for something. It's like a knowledge biopsy. It doesn't tell you the whole story, but it doesn't tell you nothing. Exam scores correlate actually very closely with program director ratings. There's something being measured on that exam, something important being measured on that exam. And there's an enormous recall bias coming out of it. People don't remember the stuff that they just breezed right through. Like you say, you, you don't want to get stuff wrong. The stuff you remember after sitting for the exam is the stuff you didn't know, not the stuff you were able to simply answer and move on. I think that's a fair point. I think, though, that you do point you, – you captured the, the key thing is bridging that gap between the preparatory process. I agree. Reviewing the material, honestly, it was, it, look, it takes time, but it's fun. Reviewing the key things that I know are important, you know, get, reading the expert opinions on things, learning what's changed, what can I tweak in my practice? Absolutely. I mean, I think most people really do enjoy that part. It's bridging that gap so that people can do that and then feel like the evaluation process is capturing that entire skill set. The Project 2020, as you point out, I, you know, I think that's something people can review. We'll put a link to it on the website if they haven't. Um, <clears throat> it, it, it shows a lot of value. Obviously, the Board of Anesthesia has already said they're going to move away from the 10-year exam. And I, I, I would say I think the ABIM could take big steps forward in closing that kind of gap, that, that disconnect between the, the membership by by allowing the exam itself to evolve and not be so much like the exam that we all took a long time ago and be something that maybe does feel a little bit more contemporary using more modern evaluation techniques. One of the other things that has also happened in this process, um, as there's been controversy over MOC, and obviously you've had to deal with this, is this did get into the public eye when Newsweek wrote some some articles that I think would be fair to say were they were very controversial. I think some of it was designed to kind of be clickbait. Um, using the term, this is a civil war in internal medicine. As a student of history, I felt that was a little bit of a cavalier way to use the term civil war. Uh, that being said, there is now a new board that uh, started um, in San Diego, the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. It's got a couple of thousand members. There is a concern that the ABIM is not meeting the needs of the diplomats and people are moving in a different direction. Is there a way that the ABIM is starting to try to reconcile those differences, maybe to try to reach out to this new board and see what the needs are to try to Try, try to bridge that wound. Well, I have certainly, I've met with Dr. Tierstein on a couple of occasions, the, the founder of the NBPAS. Um, and I think there is an important difference in philosophy. And I think that difference actually matters uh, to internists, even to internists who are frustrated with us. 
I don't think most of us have confidence that passive CME is enough. Uh, that board is proceeding to issue certificates in 24 different disciplines across all of the ABMS 24 disciplines and across all 12 of the internal medicine disciplines. And it's doing it solely on the basis of CME, CME requirements that are in many cases lower than state licensure requires. And I think that that is not a standard that most internists would settle for or believe was an accurate recognition of their skills. Uh, that board also relies on initial certification by an ABMS board. You can't be certified by that board if you haven't been initially certified by an ABMS board. And all the ABMS boards are committed to the idea that part of our programs involve a rigorous assessment. So, yes, anesthesia has moved away from a 10-year secure exam, but they are using a different approach to make uh, summative decisions, pass-fail decisions uh, about whether anesthesiologists continue to hold their certificate. Once the boards move away from lifetime certification, once we say you don't have it forever, then we have to concern ourselves with a fair, defensible process on the basis of which somebody who used to have it doesn't have it anymore. And that's critical to what we do. And we either collectively believe that once you have it, you have it forever, or we accept a participation standard. Look, I showed up for this many hours of CME. I should be able to stay certified. Or we have in there somewhere a performance standard, however imperfect. And I think most internists and internal medicine subspecialists, they value a performance standard. They definitely have issues with our performance standard. We have issues with it too. We are evolving it. We are changing it. We are looking for new ways to do it. But we're committed that the process have in it a serious performance standard. And that's a critical line. Yeah. And no, that's a very, that's a that very clear distinction. And I think, again, speaking from this, the small sample size of my own world and my friends and colleagues, I think people don't mind being assessed. We don't mind taking examinations. We don't mind working through questions. Uh, it's, it's how to do that in a manner that's reflective of the, the work that we do on a day to day basis. One of the other pieces that, that has come up, and I, I wonder if you have sensed this or if people have told you this, is whether or not uh, some of the ABIM's interest in generating these, these, this process was more about trying to make money, was trying to basically kind of have the diplomats have to pay for things more and more and more. Is that something that the ABIM has gotten a sense of? Is that a fair criticism? I, frankly, Mark, I, I think it is a very unfair criticism, and I, I, I think it is uh, absurd. And mm -hmm. Bob Wachter uh, wrote a blog about this uh, in which he described that concern as silly. Yes. You know, every organization has to operate uh, within the revenue that it generates, and it has to generate enough revenue to do what it does. There is nothing that ABIM has done financially that countless other organizations don't do routinely. Mm -hmm. I, the uh, We have a foundation, multiple 
internal medicine subspecialty societies have created foundations of their own. Uh, leaders of those societies have criticized us, even as they have adopted exactly the same structural organization. And there are reasons that organizations organize the way they do. I think of the money that we get, we don't take pharma money. We don't take industry money. We don't take government money. 100% of our money comes from doctors. That's professional self-regulation. We are completely transparent about it. We post our audited financial statement on our web website. We post our 990 on our website. I don't know of another healthcare organization that posts their audited financials on their website, but we do. And we are completely transparent about that. We, every year, a nonprofit organization and every organization has to have an audited financial statement. The auditor is required if they identify any concerns about either the financial viability of the organization or uh, the financial integrity of the organization, they are required to report to that, to report that to the board. They work for the board, not for management. Um, I'm an employee of a board of directors. I'm management. The board oversees the operation of the company. Scripps probably runs that way. Hospitals run that way. Uh, Professional societies run that way. And the auditing function is designed to have people look closely at whether there's anything going on of concern. We have had, I think it's five in a row consecutive clean audits, which is to say the auditors have had no concerns. And people can say, oh, who can trust auditors? Well, you got to trust somebody. This is one of the, the, it's the sixth largest audit firm in the, in the country. Um, they have no reason to misrepresent our finances and they've had no concerns. So I actually think that the whole finance stuff has been a red herring, has become a focus for anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doctor wants to write a check. The checks I write to the American Board of Internal Medicine are lower than I'm writing to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for a license. They're lower than I'm writing to the federal government for for my DEA certificate. Um, These are not huge amounts of money for doctors, but they've become a focus of the anger. And I frankly think it's it's misplaced and I think it has been willfully misrepresented. I think you're right that there is – it does capture a lot of anger. Again, it's a a place for that anger to focus. But I also think that as you and I have talked, we've been able to tease out some of the the places where there is a gap between membership and and the board. And obviously, it does seem like you guys are taking steps to reconcile that and to make sure that as the ABIM moves forward, that its diplomats are – that there's that sense of kind of a sh- of a connectivity and some and a, a stronger sense of shared purpose. How does the road forward look for the next couple of years going forward to Project 2020, the evolution of the ABIM and trying to reconcile some of these significant challenges that have come up in the last 24, 36, 48 months? Well, I think your art, your articulation of the word shared purpose is critical to understanding the path forward. And I was listening to your earlier podcast about shared purpose, and I, I think it's a, a hugely important concept today. Look, the board historically was what I'll call an authority-based organization. 
when we're founded in 1936, it's let's find the nine most eminent physicians in the country we can find, and they will make standards for everybody else. And that was a model that worked at its time. That was also a time that a doctor could go into a room with a patient and tell them what to do and rely on their authority that a patient would do it. They didn't have to explain themselves. They didn't have to connect. They were the doctor. They automatically had authority. Well, I don't need to tell you that that is no longer the world you live in with patients. It's no longer the world that internists are living in with their patients. It's not the world that ABIM lives in. And so the major transformation that we're driving is moving from being an authority-based organization where people respect what we do because of who does it to being a much more shared control organization because people respect what they do because they help us create it. And it has credibility and integrity because people who do it participate in the creation of it. That's a challenging concept to turn into practice from the position of being a medical board. That is a paradigm shift of note without a doubt. Huge paradigm shift. Yep. Huge paradigm and it's, shift. And it's taking that whole idea, too, of when you're in training and you're, you, know, you have the professor and everyone kind of kisses the ring and they are the knowing and the all-wise one. <laughs> you know, that's the, but that is the model in which we, we kind of – the prism that we oftentimes look to and look through – it's, it, it is no small challenge, I think, for the ABIM to twist that prism 90 degrees. None, it, you're absolutely right. It's a huge challenge. And I think a lot of the bumpiness of the last year or two is what it looks like when organizations make those kinds of transformations. They're very hard. It's very difficult to make it. But in the same way that healthcare institutions are making it and trying to treat patients as real partners and trying to move toward shared decision making and trying to move away from the idea that doctor knows best, just do what I say. The board needs to move away from the model where we know best and we just tell people what to do. And I have the full support of my board of directors behind me in this. Uh, we all recognize that the pathway, what the future looks like is a co-creation process with diplomates, we remain a standard-setting organization. We're channeling community standards. We're informing ourselves about community standards by being more rooted in the community. And we're co-creating the ways that those standards get effectuated. I think the hardest work in the last year or two has been that People have gotten so angry and have been so susceptible to willful distortion about things like the finances that people have lost sight of the fact that they're actually proud to be internists and internal medicine subspecialists, that they're proud to be staying current, that they're proud to distinguish themselves from other people who may not be, and they're proud to say to their patients and their colleagues, I'm at the top of my game. I'm doing what I need to do to practice today's medicine. The board can and should be a vehicle for that pride, an embodiment of that pride. I think most internists want us to be that, and we need to find a path through which people experience that sense of pride and distinction and affirmation 
by going through the processes that we create together. I think that's a noble goal. And and when I received a letter that said I'd passed my examination with your signature on it, I did feel a sense of pride. I studied hard. I want to be perceived as being a competent physician. I've got a lot more years to remain board certified, hopefully. Um, and I think that there's work to be done for the ABIM to bring its membership back into the fold. I don't think the ABIM has ever been any more under the spotlight, but I think that some of these steps over the last few months, hopefully will continue to bridge some of that gap. Um, and I think that sense of the board and all of us as members of the board, uh, diplomats of the board, uh, is, is something that we, I think we would like to have that. And I think that's where some of that anger may come from too, is that, Hey, we want to be on the team. We want to feel like there is that shared purpose that we have the same vision and that sense of pride and being able to say, we are good. We are on top of our game and we are well represented. Uh, I think is, is a great place for us to be moving towards project 2020 and beyond. I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's, I know it's a challenging time for you. There's a lot more work to be done, but having you come on and be able to discuss some of these things, frankly, and articulate where we've come from and what the road forward is going to look like is, is a, a, a very interesting and important exercise. So thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me, Mark. And I do want to mention that part of how we're trying to hear the voice of frontline clinicians uh, is that we have fielded a survey that we want people to give us some feedback about some of the recommendations in Assessment 2020. And my favorite question in the survey is, what do you want a board credential to say about you? What do you want it to mean? Uh, and if for diplomates to access that survey, they can log in to uh, their status page uh, at uh, abim.org. They can log in and the survey will be there. They can complete it. There also was a link in an email that we sent to all diplomates uh, a week or two ago that also gives them a link to the survey. And I really would encourage your listeners to complete that because we're not going to figure out how to do this if we don't uh, use tools like that to get closer to the world of doctors out there and hear what hear what's going on, hear how we can do better, and hear what people want the credential to say about them. Well, I appreciate the time once again and uh, look forward to seeing what the road forwards look like. And uh, we will hopefully have the opportunity down the road to reconvene and see where we are. So thanks again, Dr. Barron. Thanks for giving me the opportunity and look forward to talking to you in the future and uh, best wishes for 2016. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.